Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is the point of relation. Welcome to the point of relation. I'm Thomas Hubel, and I'm delighted to sit here uh, with my friend uh, Bob Anderson. So, welcome, Bob, to my podcast. Good to be with you, Thomas. Mm, it's good. So, we had. Uh, in the past already some amazing conversations and I think we share uh, a lot of interests and uh, we have a lot of resonance in the way we see things. And so that's why I wanted to have also this conversation with you. And and since, I mean, I think many people know the leadership circle and, and the work, especially in, in, in uh, business environments. And um, so you, you looked a lot in your life at the development of leadership. And since this podcast is called The Point of Relation, it's, a, it's about relationality, how we, where we really find points where we relate and what, what happens out of that. And I think leadership is a very important place to be relational and to be able to join spaces, shared spaces as we do right now. And I want to, like, maybe to start with, what what do you see or what did you see through decades of work that you have done um, makes leadership successful and what 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 is actually success when we talk about leadership why what is successful as a leader maybe you can speak a bit into this and then we will unfold yeah it. well there's a lot there um, I, I would I would just say that our one of our working definitions of leadership is creating outcomes that matter mm-hmm. and if you really drop into that what what matters most and how do we do that both individually in our lives, self-mastery, self-leadership and collectively in a whole organization that has scaled the capacity to create its emergent future. You used to say desired future. I think anymore given the unknown that leaders have to work with, uh, we're working more in an unknown emergent future. And so leadership is the capacity at scale to bring that into manifestation, into reality. Um, so that's starting place for the working definition. What have I learned? Well, one of the things that came to mind immediately when you started in there around relation, relationality is we did a kind of on a whim. We, we did a study where I was running out of keynote stuff because I'd been saying the same thing over. So I said, well, what if we looked at our written comments? We have a 
database of 3 million surveys, most of which have written comments in them. 300,000 leaders, 3 million surveys. What if we studied those to see, well, how do leaders talk about leadership? We separated sample for really high creative leaders and really high reactive leaders, really effective and really ineffective leaders. And the descriptions could not have been more stark, the differences in the way leaders giving feedback to here's what you're doing that's working and not working could not have been more different. And one of the most salient characteristics of the really effective high creative leaders was the emphasis on relationship. People, 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 people. It was said in so many different ways that we, the, the researchers couldn't pull it out as just one theme. Six of the top 10 most commented upon themes in this data had to do with relationship, listening, um, just good with people, develops people, it was on and on and on. So relationality is the quality that most defines effective leadership, period. If you're leading, you're in the people business. And then it came, the second themes underneath the six were purpose, like mission-driven purpose as opposed to self-interest and um, integrity and presence. Those were the defining characteristics, not from our research, like we're going out and creating a theory about leadership. We just looked at what they said and um, Almost none of those showed up on the top 10 list for the least effective leaders. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, it was dramatic. It was dramatic. So we came to the conclusion that leaders actually know what works and, and, and know that worldwide. Like relationship is a universal theme. Uh, we don't see differences in our data, uh, correlations between different dimensions and different cultures. So universally, we have a pretty good understanding of what works. Oh, that's powerful. And you also said right now that you don't see any big difference around different cultural fields. Uh, it's around the world, basically. Especially in what we call the, the creative dimensions, the, what are leadership competencies. Um, the correlations there are strongly, highly correlated to effectiveness all around the world, and they don't vary. They don't, they don't vary. When you get into more reactive dimensions, high control, high compliance, that sort of thing, we do see cultural differences there. Some or some cultures are more patriarchal. Um, uh, so we'll see some different patterns, but when we look at what they say is correlated to effectiveness, we always see the same thing. <laughs> and then the written comments bear that out. Oh, that's amazing. And you have such a rich database, so that's really yeah. amazing for a research. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 And I'm curious also, because you said one word, I mean, I'm curious in two, in two dimensions. Like one is, I had a conversation with Otto Shami yesterday and he put it beautifully. He said, the future is that which uh, is kind of dependent on you to be manifested. So and yeah. you, you said, you said something about the unknown future. So I want to go there, but later. And then the other thing that you said now is, is, um, very interesting to me, how do we create collective leadership? Because I think we are also moving into a time where collective leadership, like how do we share leadership space? And yeah. because often leadership is connected to, okay, there's one person that's running everything. And I think the next level of it would be how can 
multiple people or groups develop leadership capacities. And so I don't know if you looked into that or if you how you relate to that, I'm sure somehow. So maybe you can speak a little bit to what you saw, what you find, what you or what you intuit is is um emerging here. Well, I'll, we'll come back to the emerging future requiring our cooperation. <laughs> I, I love that. I think that's an important aspect of the emerging understanding of leadership and where leadership needs to go. Um, yeah, collective leadership. I mean, we've been at it for years, participative management, involvement, engagement, uh, um, so uh, team team leadership and so on. So it's not a new concept. Um, I, I do think that mostly when we think of leadership, we do have a kind of heroine or heroic view of it, like the, the individual leader, which is very different than, say, how the Tao Te Ching would describe leadership. That's <laughs> true. Well, we actually, I actually put it one of the statements from the Tao on the leadership circle profile as an item. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes something like this leader is so masterful that the people said we did it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's what we mean by scaling leadership. How do I develop that collective capacity in the team and in others to lead in the way that we're talking about? Like the primary thing we learned from that research was that leaders scale leadership they develop that capacity both individually and then collectively how do we show up together interact the relationality as you described it in a way that is optimally effective most groups dumb down the collective intelligence is below the average intelligence mm -hmm. versus coming together and conducting the dialogue at a level in which the collective intelligence is actually higher than the average individual intelligence in terms of, and this is where we have to go because it's just unbe unbelievably complex. Not only are we faced with the complexity of what's been called VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, now and then BANI, which makes it even more extreme. Mm -hmm. We have that challenge as leaders, but we're also at a time in history where we don't have the option of positioning our organization in a way that damages our collective welfare on the planet. We have to reposition. So I was, I'm preparing for a meeting next, well, tomorrow, I think, with a leadership at Honda. And they are in an amazing transformation as I'm reading what they want to brief us on because we do work with them. They're moving to the entire electrification of their automotive. And, it's all, and they're, they're the largest uh, internal combustion engine manufacturer in the world, and they're going to go all electric. One, they know that's where it's going, but two, it's like good for the planet. But they have the challenge of we have to maintain world leadership in, in our current offerings and completely reinvent our, our organization to go all electric. I mean, that's a level of complexity that's beyond what we've been doing because we have to re- right our relationship uh with everything from zero point up mm -hmm. that we are all there's we're all it's all one system there's only one we've been operating from separateness and it's reached its limits the world order as we know it is imploding 
So leaders are not only dealing with all of that chaos, having to reinvent their business, but do so in a way that positions the organization to be part of the solution of the future. Nobody knows how to do that. It has all of us beyond edges. I'm in a business that does leadership assessment. With AI coming on, I don't have a clue what we're going to face. Can put us out of business in the next few years. So we're in unprecedented territory where leaders more and more are challenged to lead collectively because nobody's smart enough. It's the collective, the ability of the collective to tap uh, the informational field that we are and are together, that the solutions are in that space. It's it's in that intelligence, but we have to learn how to access those subtle fields, both individually and collectively. And that's where I think the emergent future lies. So not only do you have to be really good at all the relational stuff we started with, that's like table stakes now. Mm-hmm. Now we have to up that into a level of resonance and dialogue and connection with each other that expands and opens the, the space of possibility so we can be informed by an emergent and unknown future that requires our participation and the stakes are high. So it's unprecedented times for what it takes to be an effective leader today. And it's amazing because um, like the way I look at it is that only the structures in society can fall apart that are based on the past, like that are recurrent patterns that are kind of already stuck and old. And they became old because they have no updates. They're like stuck in the past. But what you're talking about is also that relationality is the base for innovation because it's the pure data flow. The yeah. horizontal and the vertical data flow is is what we create together when we're really present with each other. And yes. that's, that's amazing. And uh, so in when you see organizations, so what what is what what do we need as organizations? Is this just happening or does it need some ingredients to develop that kind of collective updating capacity that you're speaking about? Did you see that happen in organizations? You spoke right now about one, but like, what, what are the ingredients? Why does it happen somewhere and it doesn't happen in other places? What's, what's needed in your understanding? Well, what we're being invited into is that the leadership realizes that the kind of organizational performance structure, system, culture, performance that they now need to move into is unattainable from their current level of leadership. Mm -hmm. The way they're currently leading, we call it reactive. It's usually pretty hierarchical and siloed and bureaucratic and so on. Um, But developmentally uh, immature, Mm -hmm. and we could talk more about that, but it's just not up to the complexity uh, that we're facing. So we're called in a lot to say we need to really up-level our leadership altogether, which means moving from largely where most adults are, that we're operating from an identity that is made up by other people's expectations of us. I'm trying to live up to your expectations. Some of that is past, past trauma, all kinds of voices in me that say, I have to be this way or I'm nobody. Right at the core of that identity is you define me. All these voices define me. They're managing me more than I realize. 
So something happens and I'm immediately triggered and I'm off to the race. It's either taking over the meeting or criticizing somebody or getting cautious and backing away. I'm in my reactive pattern before I realize it. And um, generally that that pattern is not well matched to being effective in the situation. And so how do we move from that to being more internally authored on purpose and not so not defined externally but internally so it's okay if i disappoint you it's okay if i don't measure up to your expectations i want to listen to that i want to be in relationship with that but they don't define me or trigger me to the degree that they have in the past and now now the conversation is about what do we want together that's bigger than uh, either of us and that becomes a that's a that becomes a very much more effective leadership internal operating system and then how it plays with others is much more effective and that's required that's like a minimum system specs now for leadership mm-hmm. and most adults are working their way into that kind of uh, level of development and the world is requiring that we move even beyond that so there's a huge development challenge in what we're talking about and so what makes the difference is whether you go on that journey together or not. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you're just going to be repeating the past. If you do, you got options for really reinventing your organization together. Mm-hmm. So basically from this reactive mode that is mainly based on the past, we are going into self-authorship, which is based on our creativity and our inner self-contact and from that relating to the world. When you say we are challenged to even develop beyond that. Can can we speak a little bit about what's beyond that? I move from self-authorship to being authored <laughs> individually and collectively. So I and we are not authoring the future. It's authoring us. I'm more and more surrendering, surrendering my identity into a larger identity, into a non-separate identity. I start also in this move I've done a lot of work on my reactive patterns and the identity that's often triggered there. And now I go deeper into that terrain in the work that you would call trauma work or shadow work. I'm dropping into the core of where I constrict. And what's powerful about that is the more we do that, the more as leaders we realize that I'm not this just this self-authoring, authentic, visionary, value-driven, purpose-driven leader. I'm also its opposite. I have dark and light in me. I am promoting diversity, and I find I have an inner racist or sexist in me. It's there. It's part of the field. It's part of the lineage that's either family or systemic that is in me. And it's not a small thing. It's like these are big awarenesses and big energies, big contractions. And as I start to see that, I, as a leader, I couple things shift. I realize that you are not my enemy. You are like me. I have that in me too. And now we're in a place to talk about, uh, to talk in a way that doesn't project my shadow my uh, onto you. And 
I know that your work moves into this powerfully. I also start to realize that my position, my well-honed vision is partial. I don't have all the answers. And that becomes more and more okay. Not only okay, but how could you? And I therefore need people, including those that I would call opponents or enemies. Like what corrective are they bringing to my perspective that I don't have? So if you're in an embedded conflict, like you're often working, Thomas, the reason it's embedded and protracted in long term is because there's a necessary corrective to my understanding that I don't yet get. The integral leader can hold that. Oh, there's something here for me that I am not seeing, as evidenced by the fact that we can't break through on this conflict or that it's just so disturbing me. So I, I have a whole different relationship with the unfinished in me, and it becomes systemic. It's like, oh, I'm a constellation of the world, uh, and therefore I can engage in a very different kind of dialogue of learning and transformation where I have as much to learn as a leader as anybody. And that creates the kind of field that we were talking about and the coherent resonance in a group that can allow that group to break through or be informed on what's emergent and must emerge in order for us to be successful. Um, so it's a very, it takes everything that we've called effective leadership and notches it up um, and uh, it is inherently collective and inclusive. Yeah, that's very powerful. And you're also speaking to, in the moment I open up these parts in myself where I see the edge of my own awareness, the edge of my own universe, conscious universe, I begin to host much more of the world inside of me. And if I host you and you host me inside, we actually share a world. And that's the beginning right. of a true collective space. And so this was very powerful because if I open my own shadow areas up so I can receive more of the world and be co-creative with more of the world. And, yeah. and that's powerful, very powerful. And as you said, that's the relationality that we need to be authored. And maybe we can speak a little bit like the shift of my awareness from when I go through that integration process, I become more and more open to be in a listening space of what actually needs us to become manifest. So how, and maybe you can speak a little bit about how can we strengthen the part in us that is listening to the incoming future. And when future is not the point in time that is later, but it's actually something unmanifest that is becoming manifest in presence. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit, what do you teach and what do you think works to expand that, to be authored uh, by something larger that projects, organizations choose us to come through us. That's a different way than I'm making a, I'm creating a company. Right? Well, it's very, it, it, yeah, I mean, we can, there's so much here. Steve Jobs said in a his I think his last one of his last speeches at Stanford just before he died, and he was looking back over his life, knowing that he was dying, and he talked about looking forward. All the dots connect. All, all none of the dots connect. Looking forward, they only connect looking back. Mm -hmm. And he used some examples like why did he drop out of college and study calligraphy? Calligraphy. Mm -hmm. And when you look back, it makes perfect sense because they introduced all these beautiful fonts and the whole. Um, landscape of the computer world changed. Mm -hmm. 
And so I've had the experience long enough now that I've looked at my life looking backward, and I'm in a place that I never imagined I would be. I'm in a profession I didn't even know about when I started. And I look at all the ways those threads have woven and the people that came into my life and all that happened, and I look back and I go, no, it was authoring me. I was just saying yes. So there's a fundamental shift that, like, in perspective that I'm not figuring it out as much as, well, if I've done anything right in my life, it's simply to listen to the impulse and the draw, the pull, and say, okay, I'm in. Yes. I don't know where this has taken me. I don't know if it'll be viable. I don't know how it'll find relevance in the world, but it's the only thing I am interested in, or it has my, it's captured my imagination. And that's resulted in a worldwide business that I didn't set out with a, like, oh, I'm going to go create this. I just followed my nose every step of the way, like a, a hunter stalking the deer, you know, through the woods. And look where it came. So there's a fundamental reorientation, I think, that happens at some point where you go, no, my job is just to listen deeply and say yes. And that comes with various contemplative practices and energetic and contemplative practices. And so we don't have to invent that. We already know all that as a species. How do you get still and quiet and bring more coherence into the whole body, uh, nervous system, energetic fields, subtle fields, so that I can be informed? And when we get coherent, stuff comes in. And when we get coherent together, stuff comes in. And um, so there are practices of intuition that open the pathways, and we're starting to teach those. It's edgy work, but we're starting to say, no, this is, this is actually how reality works. And you and I have been in a conversation around quantum physics and what we're learning from quantum physics. And the thing that quantum physics is completely reorienting us to is that it, everything is an informational field, everything. And so what Emerson said is like now leading science, that we lie in the lap of, a, of an immense field of intelligence and we are the receivers of its truth and the organs of its activity, which is exactly what we're talking about. It's authoring us. We are the receivers of its truth, its insight, its breakthroughs, and the organs of its activity. And so how do we use the contemplative and energetic practices that have been worked out in many traditions and um, access our higher meta capacities? That's very doable. And I did that once. I learned a exercise when I first started playing with intuition. I teach it now and call it the teacher exercise where you have a conversation with your teacher. And it, every time we do it, it blows people away, the insights they get. They immediately start writing. And it's a very simple exercise. Well, when I first learned it, I thought, well, we'll see. I, I don't know. We'll see. I'll, so I'll experiment with it. I went on a trip around the world with my wife before we had kids. And I did that every day and wrote down what I, whatever I got every day for three and a half months as an experiment to say, well, well I won't judge it till I get home. And when I get home, it'll either be a bunch of junk or it'll be whatever it'll be. And it blew me away. It blew me away. My wife will often now remind me, you remember when you wrote that down? Well, here it is. Just temp, exactly as you described. So 
the future was pulling me when that was 1986. The future was pulling me into what is now this manifestation. I was just learning to listen and say yes. And that's the, I think the, I think the orientation that we're talking about. Yeah, that's beautiful. <clears throat> I mean, I so much agree with everything you said right now. And it's, uh, you put it also in beautiful words. And, um, that, and there is obviously the, the step very necessary that you said before, because often when we, I often call it that, that we can put your, our foot down before the floor uh, arises so that we, that we can walk and we are aligned with that kind of emergence. So then we, we, in a way we say we trust it, but it's more than trust. I think the reverse is more interesting when we are afraid and we need to control reality. And that's why the step that you said before, we need to do a certain level of integration work. Otherwise we are too tight sometimes or too scared to follow that voice. And, and I think you mentioned that, but once we, because there was something open in you, obviously that was able to listen and say yes. And that, yeah. and that dimension for many people might be, oh, how, how do I even get to that kind of strong insight that I can say yes to. Yeah. Because once you feel it, it's it's already something is open in you. Maybe you can share a little bit about that because I think many listeners might maybe ask, okay, I, I would love to follow my insight, but I, it's it's not coming to me or I don't know how, you know. That's, well, one of the things I, I noticed and when I first started working with purpose in workshops, I would lead an exercise where they were to distill out their highest aspirations for their life. I call them must. What must I be about in this life in order to live the life I came here and not someone else's? That's the question that captured me as a young man. What must I be about in order to live the life I came here to live and not someone else's? And so that became an exercise in the workshop. And one at the end, when we were debriefing it um, with one group, this guy says, I got a new problem. I said, what's that? The life I was looking at is not the one I'm living. And that life scares the crap out of me. So I began to realize that we do have the glimpses, but we're in such a reactive relationship with fear that we dial down, we dial it back before we even let ourselves know. Like it's automatic, dial back. So I say to myself, I don't know what it is, not realizing that life is giving us information all the time, but it scares us. And so we dial it back too much, make it more practical, more realistic. Well, maybe next year, whatever. And um, leadership lives at the edge. That's the deal. There's no safe way to be great and there's no great way to be safe. It's, uh, it's a polarity that we're constantly in. We call it the core tension, tension between purpose and safety. And there's no way out of it. Either move toward the purpose, or as David White says in one of his poems, the body fills with dense smoke. It's non-negotiable. And um, and it's an acquired taste. I loved your notion of like, we have to put our foot down before with a floor below it forms. And because it takes that, it, at, at whatever stage I'm moving into an unknown future, it takes that. And I recently I was, I'm in another evolution in my work. So I'm back in the whole experience again. What is this? How is it going to be relevant? Am I wasting my time? Um, I'm back in it again. And, and I 
after I get done beating myself up for it, I go, wait a minute, I've been here before. And I was quiet in the meditation recently and I went, oh, my job, my job, I'm not saying others' job, my job is to live at the edge of irrelevance. I live at the edge of irrelevance and then try to distill it back into, here's what's emerging at the edge of our field, and at, at, right? How do we make that now the next relevant piece of work? So that it, kind of constantly being in the relationship that there's no floor underneath the step I'm taking. Mm-hmm. And that is the capacity of being conversant with the unknown. It's not empty space, it's pregnant space, but it's also, it's full of possibility, yet emergent. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very powerful. And also, you're describing in a way how we create out of something that's not manifest and that needs us to be courageous to listen to it and, and, and in a way channel that through our bodies and our current existence to make it happen. And I love the phrase, like to go to the edge of irrelevance. I think that's that's like that's the in a way the risk we need to take in order to be innovative and to be inspired. I think you see it also in many artists, the artists that constantly stay on the edge of irrelevance and bring new insights and new music, and they they're kind of surprising you again and again. Or the artists that fall into the trap of becoming hooked up by success, and then the music becomes more and more shallow or like repeating itself as a formula versus literally bringing new inspiration in that is that is new and yeah. I, and i want to talk with you a little bit because and maybe just before we finish our conversation like how because for me it feels like like when we are willing to make a step before the flow appears it's like we create something out of nothing and or we allow i mean for many people speaking is is a premeditated process. I try to say something that is good. I try to say th- something that's accepted. Or we we all, I think many of us know the moments where we say something and we are surprised by what we said right now. And it's actually yeah. good. It's not like, wow. it's so bad. yeah, it's wow. Yeah. And, and those moments are actually can become a quality that we live in more, yeah. more. So yeah. actually, l- l- information or life can come through us and also us and maybe you can speak a little bit to that experience like your own experience to that and maybe also in your work with leaders this moment where that is not premeditated that is literally a virgin birth it like it's coming through and it's not it's new that's yeah that's what i mean by collective intuition or this dialogue creating the space where something can happen we're speaking from the space Mm -hmm. we're not speaking from our ideas right uh, or, or pre thought out no we're listening to what's emerging and then speaking from it so this has been an emergent practice of mine i've done a lot of key keynoting and when i first got into keynoting it it terrified me mm-hmm. and so i had every i had every single thing thought out on that keynote i'm talking down to the second I knew what I was going to be saying at this hour presentation. And it wasn't memorized or stiff. Actually, um, once I got into it, that gave me a a scaffold and a structure to relax into, and then I could show up. Um, But more and more, my practice is both in 
say, coaching or in a conversation with a leader, how do I listen deeply? As you said, you arise in me and I arise in you. And then in that deep connection, something new wants to be said, something that surprises both of us, me. And they'll often have the experience where they say, could you say that again? That was really powerful. And I go, what did, what did I say? <laughs> I, can't, I can't recall it because it, it just came through. And um, just last week, I made the choice that I was going to do a keynote with no preparation. <laughs> and I literally walked on stage and I didn't know what my first line was. Now, I had some things prepared in terms of experientials that I wanted to lead them through, but the rest of it, all the wrapping around it and how to introduce the work and so on. No, I wanted to drop in, get really present with them and then speak. And it surprised me where it started. I kind of, in my mind, I went, oh, we're going to start here. Okay. And, and, and it was, uh, the first time I've really tried in front of 250 people to do improv, be spoken through, listen to the field and then speak what's there. And um, I got an email recently. We've been working on this with some leaders. I got an email from one senior leader, healthcare, lots of complexity through COVID and so on. And he was wrapping up. He said, I'm wrapping up a very important meeting and I'm talking from my head to close the meeting. And I can look out and I can see it's not connecting. And so I just stopped and I got st- silent. I went silent for a minute and everybody went silent with me. And then I spoke from there. And when I was done speaking, the room was galvanized and the senior healthcare administrator said, this is exactly what we needed to hear and where we should end this meeting. That's the speaking, being spoken through or speaking from the intelligence that's there rather than that. That's a practice, but it also presupposes the intuitive work that I described and the learning how and the shadow work to open the field so that the flows of energy and information can actually course through our body. And then we're in a state of grace. It's a state of grace that's authoring us that moment. That's beautiful. I think that's a lovely uh, way to end this conversation. I hope we will have some other conversations. I mean, there are so many other things we could talk about now. Um, But that was beautiful, what you said also about your own keynote and about being authored in that moment and how that feels also and how that connects to people because we are all interested in fresh water. We don't want to swim in standing water. You know, we need some fresh water to to feel our arrows and feel our... Yeah, and when you're in that space, there's a whole different resonance and the resonance is the transmission Mm -hmm. and people get it at a much deeper level, Mm -hmm. at a level that they're, where they're not defended. Yeah, that's beautiful, Bob. Thank you so much for this. This was a great round. I really enjoyed the arc that we <laughs> that we went through. It's really beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. round of years. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, wonderful to be with you. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.